So it's been a bit of a challenge to think of something that qualifies as a pet topic that I can stand on the soapbox or rest my feet on the soapbox and get all prophetic about this morning. Uh, it's a challenge for two reasons for me. One is that I tend to see my beliefs and convictions as part of a single package, as sort of logically interconnected components of the whole way I understand the gospel and see the world, rather than a series of discrete sort of campaigns for social change. So they all fit together. Certainly there are some things that occupy my attention and emotions more than others do, but only rarely do I feel that these things are somehow more important uh, than the other ways that God is at work in the world. Uh, the other reason why it's a challenge is that you already know the things that occupy my attention, because I have got to speak about them uh, many times before, and to choose one of them to repeat uh, would seem a bit predictable and certainly repetitive. If I had to choose, though, one biblical text that captures the kind of holistic way that I have come to view my faith and the key themes that have attracted my attention over the past 40 years or so, it would be this text from Romans 14. Uh, in Romans 14 and 15, just to put this text in context, Paul is addressing a very destructive conflict in the first century church in Rome. Uh, the church was literally being torn apart by this debate. The conflict centered on whether the observance of certain Jewish laws and practices, uh, especially related to, to Sabbath observance, to food regulations, and to purity requirements, which were very central to Jewish identity, whether those requirements remained obligatory in what was now an ethnically diverse community in which the Gentiles were comprising the majority, even in Rome. So it was a very um, intense debate. It was no minor quibble. It raised issues of profound pastoral and theological importance. Uh, both sides had very persuasive arguments, and it's a really interesting thing to do with a group of people is to get them to divide on this issue and mount the kind of arguments that were relevant. And uh, it's not clear where most modern Christians would have stood on that debate. Uh, very persuasive arguments on both sides. And Paul saw the merit of both positions, although he was very clear on where he stood on the issue. But in chapters 14 to 15, his goal is not to settle the argument between both groups, but to encourage both groups to accept each other as brothers and sisters, and to show a concern not for winning the cause, but for the welfare of the other side. And as he does that, he reminds them in this text on the, on the um, screen of what he considers to be the most important or central features of Christian commitment, the sort of things they need to remember about what this thing that God is doing in the Messiah is, is really all about. So he says, if your brother or sister is being injured by what you eat, because that was the issue that they were divided about. We could take an issue like sort of sexual orientation and put it into the, into the mix because it was every bit as intense a debate as that. If you are injuring your brother or sister by the position that you take, you're no longer walking in love. Do not let the cause of what you eat cause the ruin of one for whom Christ died. For the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, 
the one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God and has human approval. So this text has been particularly relevant for me because it combines the four or five, four or five big ideas that have dominated the way that I've come to sort of view Christian commitment over the past uh, three or four decades in particular. The first big idea is the notion of the kingdom of God as the heart of Jesus' message, the heart of his mission, the idea that holds everything together uh, that Jesus said and did, and one that we absolutely need to understand if we're going to understand what Jesus was on about. This is not a minor theme. This is absolutely uh, irreplaceably central to understanding his mission. Paul and Paul doesn't use this language very often, but here he does. The kingdom, he says, is not about dietary laws. It's not about other religious or, um, or, or moral practices. It's about righteousness. It's about peace. And it's about life in the spirit. So the word righteousness is another key theme for my work, for my sort of soapbox, um, if I were standing on it. It's another very comprehensive word, and it's really a very beautiful word. It's a word that has been a bit damaged by the fact that we've linked it to the idea of self-righteousness, which sounds so moralistic. But the idea itself is, I think, a, a beautiful term. The idea of bringing things together so all is the way it's supposed to be. A term that captures both personal uh, moral conduct and social justice as well. The word righteousness embraces, if you like, embraces both morality and the outworking of that in society. So my understanding of restorative justice, which has dominated my life for a very long time, flows directly out of this comprehensive understanding of God's righteousness as God's effort to make things uh, well again. The same applies to my commitment to nonviolence and to peacemaking. As well as justice, Paul says God's kingdom is also about peace or shalom. Again, in its most comprehensive sense, peace with God, peace with one another, peace with creation and the environment, and peace with ourselves. Uh, and the latter two, I think, are really relevant uh, to the context we live in. Peace with the environment certainly is, is undoubtedly the major moral issue of our day. But so is the idea that people are struggling under all kinds of mental health issues because they are unable to sense some sense of integration in their own inner lives. So the kingdom of God then is about justice and about peace. But what else? Well, the what else here is it's about joy in the Holy Spirit. Now I think it's this third sort of part of the triangle or the, the other sort of tripod on which the kingdom stands that prevents us from reducing peace and justice to a political platform alone that we are intended to work for and achieve through, through human effort alone. Because the energy of God's kingdom is the Holy Spirit, is joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what I want to just focus on for the rest of the time, uh, the, the what else of the kingdom agenda, the kind of soft soap in the soapbox, I guess. Um, before doing so, let me just mention the fifth big idea in this text uh, that I, to me is, is a really central one. Again, it's no, no news uh, to hear me say this. The idea of being acceptable to God and being good news for those around us comes by serving Christ through our commitment to justice and peace and joy. 
the one who thus serves Christ, the one who is committed to Christ in this way, is acceptable to God and gains human approval. The heartbeat of Christian life must be a controlling focus on following Jesus as the bearer of the kingdom. The heartbeat is not about championing a particular theological or moral or political agenda in the name of Christ, which is so prevalent in the contemporary church and does so much to discredit the gospel. Rather, it's about following the person of Jesus, which is why I have found the Christocentrism of the Anabaptist tradition, again, as you know, to be so helpful, because it keeps reminding us to think about uh, the life and practice of Jesus as our reference point. But let me return to the what else of the kingdom here, the joy in the spirit. Uh, a few years ago, I was invited to speak on the theme of finding joy in difficult circumstances. I don't really like when I'm asked to, to speak, to be told what I'm going to speak about. Um, I much prefer what's happened here, uh, speak of whatever you want to speak about. But they asked me to speak about the topic of finding joy in difficult circumstances at a conference of the Christian Medical Fellowship out in Upper Hutter was held. When I began pondering what I could possibly say about that topic, my mind went back to something that I'd recently read in a book. It was a book that I picked up at a second-hand bookshop in Raumati uh, during a weekend away with Margaret up in Gavin Drew's house. Do you remember that? It was about 10 years ago. Uh, there's not much to do up there on a wet Saturday afternoon. We went uh, rummaging through this bookshop. And I came across a book that was entitled The Originality of the Christian Message, published in 1920, 100 years ago, by the Scottish theologian H.R. Macintosh. It was based on a series of lectures that Macintosh had delivered in America uh, just after World War I on how Christianity was unique or distinctive or, in his word, original among the religions of the world. It's not the kind of book that a modern religious studies scholar would ever dare to write today. Uh, with its bold assertions of the uniqueness and superiority of Christian truth. That's not the kind of thing you're liable to even anymore be invited to speak about on a campus. But that's what made it such an interesting thing to read, the kind of um, arrogance, maybe, <laughs> was the boldness about, uh, about this, this um, perspective. The book focuses primarily on what set earliest Christianity apart from the other religious and philosophical movements in the first century Greco-Roman world. And Macintosh proposes in these essays that one of the most distinctive features of the early Christian movement was its message of redemption as present experience. It was not just its assertion of bodily life after death that made it different, although that certainly was pretty different, it was also its emphasis on salvation as a presently available experience of moral and spiritual and emotional transformation. An experience of what Macintosh calls a present blessedness. The blessedness of union with Christ here and now. So this, he, he identified this as something that made Christianity different from uh, the alternatives that were around. Now, as all good Protestants know, in the New Testament, 
accounting for this experience of present salvation, there is an overriding emphasis on the role of faith. It is through faith that believers are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, find deliverance from the power and the guilt and the shame of sin, and are empowered to use Paul's phrase, to walk in newness of life. Faith is the key that enables you to lock into this new reality. Macintosh doesn't deny that, but he draws attention almost in passing. This is not a great theme, this is why you know, it sort of caught my attention. Almost in passing, he draws attention to something else in the New Testament descriptions of present redemption. And that something else is the role of joy. So in the first century Greco-Roman world, it was marked by a pervading sense of darkness, of pessimism, of superstition, and of fear. Cruelty and bloodshed were everywhere. By contrast, he says, the New Testament is, quote, the most obviously exultant book that has ever been written. The spirit of this book, this exultant book, is encapsulated in Paul's thrice-repeated injunction to the Philippians. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice always in the Lord. Again, I will say, third time, rejoice. Such an emphasis on joy and rejoicing in the Christian community was highly unusual in the religious environment of the time. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just quote you directly from, uh, from this book. The, the language is, um, is a wee bit archaic, but uh, he can say it better than I can summarize it. He writes, Students of first century literature need not be told that this distinctively Christian gladness or glad fearlessness which breaks across the life, across life like a flushing dawn, was a strange new thing. Such joy unspeakable and full of glory is not found in other faiths. Jesus somehow was able to give men the courage to believe themselves redeemed, not merely by speaking to them about the Father, but by re revealing in his own life the security and gladness which flow from trustful obedience to the Father's love. As Matthew Arnold said, quote, it is the gladness of Christianity which made its fortune, not its sorrow. Alone in the religions of the world, it dared to say, rejoice evermore. This is a fact so distinctive that some thinkers have actually defined the method of Christianity as salvation by joy. The joy in God generated by the fact of Christ was a new phenomenon in religious history and one charged with boundless significance for the creation of living and victorious morality. So I was struck by that comment and I sat back and said to myself, where did this early Christian experience of irrepressible joy come from? It's there, Macintosh draws attention to its uniqueness or distinctiveness. Where did it come from? And it seemed to me, without much thinking, 
that it probably came from at least four interrelated sources. The first source was the first source of this irrepressible joy was an unshakable belief by the first believers in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. An event that proved beyond all question that he had secured a definitive victory over the powers of death and evil. In an age dominated by superstition, the idea that these powers had been, had been bested through the resurrection brought an immense sense of relief and a tremendous sense of hope for the future and an intrepid fearlessness in the present. So at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul can sort of taunt death. Death has been swallowed up in victory, he exults. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, one day I want to talk about the power of sin as a law, because I've got some interesting new thoughts around what that means. Anyway, that's another, another topic. So the, 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 the belief in the resurrection, I'm sure, was part of the source of this uh, incredible joy. The second was an awareness of having received a radical forgiveness of sins and a deliverance from the compulsions or the power of sin. This enabled them to walk in this newness of life that Paul speaks, a newness that was characterized by a profound sense of lightness and of liberty. Again, Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The third thing that came to mind for this joy was the experience of belonging to a new social community, the body of Christ, a new kind of egalitarian society in which there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, for we're all one in Christ Jesus. Again, something we take so much for granted as being self-evidently the right thing to be, we don't recognize how radically different it was to have a community like this in the first century. And membership of this community, especially for those lower down the pecking order, or those who are not males, not elite males, membership of this community brought a feeling of mutual solidarity and support and a newfound sense of dignity and equality that cut across all the deepest divisions of the day and I'm sure made people very happy to be part of a community like that. The fourth and undoubtedly most important source of early Christian joy was the indwelling and empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in their midst. And this wasn't a matter of abstract doctrine. It was a matter, if you just really read the texts and take them as sort of insights into what the reality was, it seems to me inescapably the case. It was a matter of tangible experience. An experience that seems to have been felt like being immersed into liquid love. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 5, God's love has been poured into our heart. It's almost a metaphor of a bucket 
of molten fire or chocolate wine. I've actually um, tasted chocolate wine when I was in the States one time. Howard Zay gave me a, <laughs> this little thing of chocolate wine. It was like an experience of having something as sweet as that being poured into your heart by the Spirit who has been given to us. Over and over again, the experience of joy in the New Testament is attributed to the life of the Holy Spirit that was sent like a flood upon this young community. So it was these four interconnected realities then that generated this effervescent, this contagious joy that distinguished the early Christian movement from other competitors. It doesn't mean, of course, that the Christian uh, community exercised a monopoly on joy. I mean, all people have the capacity to know profound joy, irrespective of their religious or philosophical commitments. It's part of being made in God's image, in the image of a joyful God. It's the manifestation of what theologians call common grace, something God's given to everybody. But while the joy was not unique to Christians, there is still something unique about Christian joy. You could say it's sort of human joy on steroids, with the steroidal injection comprising of these four realities, a confidence in Christ's triumph over death and the forces of evil, the knowledge of personal forgiveness and freedom from moral defeat, membership of a loving, worshipping community of equality and support, and most importantly, immersion in the liberating life and power of God's Spirit. But perhaps the most distinctive thing of this steroidal Christian joy was this capacity to coexist with suffering and distress. And when you think about it, this is really quite remarkable. The New Testament writers speak repeatedly of joy and suffering as simultaneous realities. They're not mutually exclusive conditions. They don't cancel each other out. Instead, they run like on a dual carriageway, side by side, in the life of, uh, of those who are in Christ. And again, this coexistence of joy and suffering is attested everywhere in, New, in the New Testament. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, Paul writes to the Corinthians, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia, for during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. He reminds the Thessalonians of how, in spite of persecution, you received the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit. Or the writer to, uh, of James goes so far as to suggest that whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. So they all speak of joy in the time of trial, joy in the midst of sorrow. The sorrow is still sorrow. The pain is still pain. It still hurts. It's never denied or oppressed or trivialized, nor can it ever be evaded. But paradoxically, even miraculously, the suffering is accompanied by a tenacious, inextinguishable joy. And this distinctive blend of, of um, suffering and, and buoyancy is 
the most eloquently described for me, again, in a, in a text that I consider to be one of the most beautiful I can think of in the New Testament, and particularly the part that I've put in italics, because I just think this is the most incredible way of talking about the experience that Paul had of Christ. He said, it was God who said, let light shine in the darkness. It goes back to the creation narrative. The experience we've had is, is like the creation of light who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I like to reverse that thing. In the face of Jesus Christ, we see the glory of God shining like light. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be clear that the extraordinary power belongs to God and it does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be visible in our bodies. This incredible combination of extreme suffering and the sense of irrepressible life that the suffering does not actually um, get access to. So it's no wonder then that just as the New Testament speaks of peace as something that surpasses understanding, so it also speaks of joy as beyond description and full of glory. So this is not only true of the early Christian community, it was clearly true of Jesus himself. Because when we turn to the gospel accounts, we find joy was a recurring theme in the teaching and activity and experience of Jesus as well. He was frequently found at table with sinners and tax collectors celebrating their inclusion in God's saving work and restoring work. The disciples as well were beneficiaries of this new reality. So in Luke 10, uh, Luke tells us of the time when the 70 disciples returned from a preaching mission that they'd been sent out of uh, by Jesus to go out and sort of spread the word. And they came back and they were really clearly uh, in a state of buzz about this. And we're told they returned in joy saying, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. It was cool. Jesus responded by explaining to them that it was so cool because they had received unique access to his own power over spiritual evil. But don't rejoice in your power, but rather rejoice in the grace that you've received. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then Jesus turns his eyes towards God and he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, marveling at how the Father had drawn such marginal people such insignificant people into the orbit of a saving revelation. And then he turns to the disciples and he pronounces the beatitude, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, see and hear what you hear. The earlier list of beatitudes, as, uh, as you know, concludes with this paradoxical reference to joy and suffering at the end. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, defame you on the account of the Son of Man, rejoice on that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. So again, 
The disciples' joy comes from being caught up in this present blessedness of God's saving rule, a joy that persists in the face of pain and persecution and social exclusion and even depression and burnout because we know that Paul suffered from extreme uh, depressive episodes of burnout when he was ready to give up. This joy is also what fuels the social radicalism of God's rule. So in the buried, uh, parable of the buried treasure, which we've uh, used in the uh, Godly Play episodes a couple of times, Matthew 13, Jesus likens discovery of the kingdom to finding a treasure hidden in the field, which the man then in his joy goes back and sells up all his goods and seeks to buy that field. So discovering God's saving presence through the work of Jesus is something that elicits great joy. And it's this joy that impels towards a change of lifestyle. The man sold all he possessed and he bought the pearl in the field of great price. He disinvested with the world as he knew it and he reinvested himself in this different way of being. And again, throughout the teaching of Jesus, we find this consistently demanding ethical response from his hearers to the presence of the kingdom. He calls for radical change. And the word that, again, we've got to be subboxy, it's the prophetic word of repentance that captures that sense of radical change that he called for. Because repentance in the biblical tradition, in the prophetic tradition, entails a conscious refocusing of your values and your priorities and your allegiances and your patterns of conduct back onto the right kind of reference point. It's sort of being drawn back to the magnet that ought to be uh, determining your values and your practices. And Jesus' call for repentance was really far-reaching in nature. It wasn't just the call for the sinner's prayer. It was a call for change that, if you, if you look at the whole sort of um, um, scope of Jesus' ethical teaching, it touches on four of the most fundamental areas of human society, human experience. The area of wealth and possessions, which is, you talk about that more than anything else. That's the realm of economic power. The areas of status and privilege and prejudice, which is the realm of social power, because the society was built on, on, on um, pyramids of prejudice and of hierarchy. And Jesus spoke at that and, and deconstructed that by encouraging his followers not to buy into that at all. Don't get into these competitions for honor. Uh, the area of violence and attitudes towards the enemy, area, area of political power and coercive power. And then the fourth area that his teaching related to um, was the area of religious and ritual performance, which is the domain of spiritual power. And so Jesus' teaching touched on all those big spheres in which we uh, construct our communities. And in each of these areas, without exception, responding to the thing that God was now doing by bringing his power to work in Jesus, without exception, it demanded transformation. Jesus was nothing if he was not radical. The word radical means going to the root of something. Jesus was nothing if he was not radical. But the radicalism, the personal and societal radicalism that he called for was not the product of heroic self-discipline. 
nor of cold moralism, nor of doctrinaire legalism, nor of ideological purism. I've been at my thesaurus, you can see. All of which are common in society and all of which are prevalent in the church. Heroic self-discipline, cold moralism, doctrinaire legalism, ideological purism. That was not what drove this call to radical change. It was the product of joy. The joy of discovery. The joy of grace. The joy of finding something extraordinary and receiving as a gift. The motivation for commitment to the transformational agenda of God's kingdom was joy. The joy of being connected with Jesus. The joy of being filled with the Spirit. Of course, joy doesn't do the whole job. It needs to be complemented by self-discipline and by courage and by hard work. And discipline and courage and hard work are difficult. And so discipleship is difficult, as Anabaptists are fond of stressing. Jesus constantly warned his followers that following him would involve hardship, would involve persecution, rejection, suffering. There's a cost to discipleship just as there was a cost to messiahship. They're cut from the same cloth. And the disciple must be prepared to embrace that cost. But when we do, when we sell our investment in the world as it is and buy property in God's new order, we get a kind of free promotional gift along with the purchase. We get joy. The joy of fulfillment, the joy of peace, the joy of being joined to Jesus and his people, the joy of being open to the Spirit, the joy of knowing that you are connected with the love that drives the universe. It is a joy capable of sustaining us through the darkest of times because it is constantly replenished by the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's my soapbox <coughs> hobby horse. A uh, hobby horse with several legs. The grand vision of following the kingdom of God. The call to follow Jesus as the one who embodies and bears that kingdom and who shows us the way, who leads the race, who's gone ahead of us down the track. Working for righteousness, God's desire to restore and heal the world. A commitment to peacemaking in all its forms because you can't make people right by beating them up or killing them or doing violence to them. And a joy in the Holy Spirit as the energy that sustains us and that renews our hope in times of pain and distress. <clears throat>